You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, April 22nd, 2009, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone. And it was on April 25th, back in 1990, that the Hubble Space Telescope was deployed in space from the spatial discovery. Can you believe it? Hooray! That was Remember? 19 years? Oh, my 19 God. 19 wow. years. Remember what a, what a cluster that was yeah. oh, um, when they a determined cluster? that they had this spherical star uh, aberration? Yep. <laughs> yeah, right? I remember every all the all the, the late night uh comedians were just totally ragging on it for weeks. It was horrific. You know where that lens was made? Connecticut. In Connecticut. Yeah. Danbury, Connecticut. Danbury, Danbury, Connecticut. Yeah. Right where right where we live. That's right. That's right. They could work I think they only worked on it in certain hours of the day because of the truck vibrations on the highway. That's what the problem was. <laughs> Near, nearby. So they worked on it only at night due to a little less traffic. It was it was big you know, big news around here for a long time. And the yeah. anticipation was huge. So the Hubble telescope went on to do incredible things, take incredible photographs. So it was a minor hiccup in the beginning, but they fixed it. Yeah. yeah luckily. The glasses. Yeah, that's right. But speaking of gorgeous pictures, the Cassini probe has been sending back absolutely stunning photographs of Saturn and its rings and moons. Oh, man. Could you imagine living out there on one of those moons and being able to see that as your view? <laughs> Some, yeah, I remember when Carolyn, Carolyn Porco came to TAM one year and showed photographs of Cassini stuff, and it was just jaw-dropping. So cool. There's one shot of the rings that um, you're seeing a sliver of the planet, and then the rings are going across the face of the planet, and they look ghost-like, and they're beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful pictures I've seen. It's incredible. Uh, I like the picture of Iapetus, and you could see the ridge you know, because Iapetus is like walnut shaped. It's got a ridge that goes all the way around it, and you could—it's a very close-up picture. Incredible. So at a distance of two thousand four hundred miles, which is nothing, wow. and you can see this yeah, huge cool ridge stuff. going around the moon. There are sixty-one known moons uh, orbiting Saturn. They just keep discovering more. I think when I was in yeah. school learning about this, it was maybe in the twenties or thirties, but. And if you remember, last, just last week we were saying that we know that science works because it delivers the goods, as Carl Sagan said. And these are the goods. This is, you know, we could send a, a hunk of metal you know, millions of miles away and get back these very pictures of Saturn and its rings and moons. Yeah, you don't see a little spaceship powered by uh, homeopathy putting by taking snapshots. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and there's another bit of cool space news from just this last week. Uh, the search for interesting and increasingly Earth-like exoplanets continues to progress, and now we've discovered the yet again smallest exoplanet. This is Gliese 581e. So in the naming convention that they're using, the letter A is, is I guess, attached to the, the star itself. B would be the first exoplanet in that system discovered, then C, D, etc. So this is the fourth exoplanet in the, of this star, Gliese 581. And this this uh, planet they discovered is only 1.9 times the size of Earth. Wow. That's getting awfully close to the size, size of Size in terms of what? Diameter or density or what? I think it's weight. This one's by mass rather than mass. Okay. So, uh, but it's not in the habitable zone. It's uh, very close to its star, and it, it orbits... 
in only a few days. Not 20 hours like that last one that was right. discovered. But uh, Astronomers are predicting that within a couple of years, we're going to be finding truly Earth-sized exoplanets, hopefully farther uh, out from their their stars. So again, the holy grail is to find an Earth-like planet in the habitable zone of its system so that it might actually contain liquid water and therefore potentially life. What method did they use to discover? Was it the transit method? or This is the wobble method, I think. Okay. Looking at the wobble and the parent star by the mass effect of the, of the planet. That's pretty good then because yeah. it's such a low-mass planet. Wow. Yeah, but the closer it is, the, the planet is yeah. to the star, the more wobble you get. So you can find right. big worlds farther out or smaller worlds, worlds closer in. That's, that's, that's why we need to refine the methods before we could find Earth size, you know, far enough out to be in the habitable zone. And, of course, the transit method is also the same thing. The, the bigger the planet and the closer it is to the star, the, the more light it blocks as it, as it transits, right. transits across the star, and therefore the easier it is to detect. So that's why we have to refine these methods. I'm really hoping, and I know that this is such an incredible long shot, but, God, I would love to see an alien, and I would love to hear like what their language would be like if they even had an, an audible language, you know. But God, could you just imagine yeah. how profound that would be? Mm-hmm. Would it be a biped, you know? Like there was a book uh, that we looked at. Remember, Bob, that it was at Steve's house a long time ago? Uh, actually, I think Michael Whalen made a drawing in it, but it had all these different aliens in it. Like an alien encyclopedia. Was, was it aliens from science fiction novels, right? Just yeah, yeah. Visual and, representations of aliens. And, yeah. And w- one of the aliens had like a um, like a, a sphere that it sat on and rolled around, and they were insanely fa- you know like you know there was just the fantasy of what, what these aliens would do. But it didn't you know it didn't have legs or anything. It, it had like a, a stone that it grew that it rolled on. It had you know with its muscles, it was able to like basically like a giant bowling ball roll around on top of that. And I just Marshall. thought it was yeah, really yeah. I thought that was really cool, but I also thought it was really implausible. Yeah, well, but the, the bottom line is we don't know. We don't know what, uh, how typical or atypical life right. on Earth is. We got one data point. And for the know. most part, I think that <clears throat> I know you guys are big Star Trek fans or whatever, but you look at Star Trek and the aliens they have on there, I think it shows just a stunning lack of imagination. Oh, for Star Trek? Yeah. Yeah, that everybody is, for the most part, is bipedal and you know maybe there's something funky on your forehead and yeah, you're yeah. yeah but they explain gonna, that yeah. i know they i'm gonna see the movie i'm gonna that. see the movie too rebecca so i can't wait <laughs> but basically any any alien that you think is hot and you could be attracted to that's unimaginative that's not a, a plausible alien in my book mm. yeah but oh, you got to go back to the 1960s with roddenberry and first off the budget limitations and the the relative you know I'm not saying there's a, nature. no other reason for it but I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, like, but but no, I, I think it still shows a lack of imagination. I think there are plenty of yeah, shows. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Other things, but but with Roddenberry, his one of his key things though was that you, you need you know you need eyes and you need a mouth. You need some. You got to be able to relate emotionally to these characters yeah. in some way, so that so that you have good drama, so that the show is interesting. Otherwise, you know, it's hard to get emotionally involved in a talking. No, what, what about the horde? You know, the horde broke my heart, man. <laughs> no kill eye. No, no kill eye. I mean, yeah. No kill eye. <laughs> yeah, but how did you interpret no kill eye? Um, but I'm just saying that's what he was thinking. That's what Roddenberry yeah. was thinking. But yeah, you but you you could you could do a good job with something that's not totally anthropomorphic. Yeah, well, Bob, remember that one episode on the next gen when uh, 
that one alien goes, ugly bags of mostly water, and he's talking yeah, about right? humans. <laughs> and I remember yeah. Bob and I were looking at... We saw- <laughs> well, let's go on uh, to the next item. We're going to talk a little bit about the Huffington Post. This oh, is... The HuffPo. Huff, the HuffPo. Oh, I say. Um, so the Huffington Post is an online newspaper and blog post. With a liberal slant. It does have a liberal slant, although it's not, the, not something that we care about. But what it does have is a completely <laughs> pseudoscientific slant. And uh, it's really getting terrible. It's really getting – you know, we've been – I've been reading articles on the Huffington Post because it's been a, uh, a focal point of anti-vaccinationist uh, writing for a long time. Uh, but now they're going – Far beyond that, it seems as if it's not just the the usual uh, low quality science journalism where you have false balance or you have someone who's not a scientist who doesn't know how to interpret or uh, or really put into context the the stories that are coming out. Rather, you have people writing articles and blogs for the Huffington Post that are anti scientific and that have either an anti vaccinationist agenda or an anti mainstream medicine agenda. So it's really the editorial policy it seems, of the Huffington Post to do this. There were three articles just in the last few days uh, that you know a lot of our listeners are, have been emailing me, some of which I've already written about. That I, and just to give you an, uh, an example, so these are the three ones that have been out recently that people have been emailing us about. One was an article written by Kim Evans, and the title of this post is Antibiotics Cause Cancer, with a uh, question mark. Ugh. How many millions of people have antibiotics saved? Right. Do we oh really need some anti-science science loon? You know. Yeah, she's a loon. Information. She's about a it. total loon. So, so this is the case that she builds, right? That, and and the scientific illiteracy she demonstrates in her writing is profound. I mean, you just have to read it. She, she calls the bacteria that colonize our bodies probiotics. That's hmm. that's wrong. Probiotics are like products, like yogurt that have bacterial cultures in it. Right. It's not the name of the bacteria. Then she said, this was, a, this was a great one, that healthy bacteria form the basis of our immune system. What? Why no, that's, that's, that's what everyone... Really? What? That's oh my what, God. <laughs> right now, Mark, Mark Chrislip is throwing up on his shoes. <laughs> <laughs> He's so, throwing up all that, yeah, all that bacteria. They, yeah. they, you know, the healthy bacteria crowd out you know, bad or more malicious bacteria, but they don't form the basis of our immune system. You know, your own cells form the basis of your immune system. Uh, it's just this is just one uh, sort of passive layer of defense. Wow. Then she says that so after you know basically trumping up the the role that these healthy bacteria play in our immunity, she says that when people take antibiotics, it kills off these bacteria. Again, there's a kernel of truth to that, although she totally exaggerates yeah. it. Sure, if you take broad-spectrum, really big-gun antibiotics for a long time for a serious infection, it could significantly decrease your normal uh, bacterial uh, ecosystem, and that can leave you vulnerable to other infections until you have a chance for it to recover. But she makes it sound like this is basically what happens routinely whenever you use any antibiotics and that your, and that your bacteria never recovers. What does happen, she argues, is that you get candida, which is a fungus, that every, and that 90% of the population has candida overgrowth, which is a complete distortion. 90% of people are colonized with candida. It's just another part of the ecosystem. Right. But it's not ninety percent of people don't have an infection or an overgrowth of candida. That is complete nonsense. But this is she's just setting you up for, for the big woonisk. What she where she this is all headed is that 
this candida overgrowth is what causes all cancers. Oh, man. Isn't that and, oh, what a red flag that is? Uh, well, yeah, it, yeah. Any cause for all disease or all cancer or all right. anything is always a big red flag. And she's getting this from Dr. Tullio Simoncini, who is a notorious cancer quack, who's, who claims that you know, candida causes all cancer, and you can cure all cancer by treating with antifungals. The, yeah, the, by treating the candida, it's completely absurd. And she's, and it's and all, the other thing is, she's. This is also all a thinly veiled infomercial for her book on cleansing toxins from your body. Oh. Surprise! Oh. Oh, there we go. Uh, so the Huffington Post wait. is basically. <laughs> now wait giving, a minute. She's butting in on Kevin Trudeau's. You know, territory here. What is going on? I think Kevin Trudeau's, uh, you know, lawyers might be paying her a visit soon. Yeah. Zero credibility. So, and then the next day, there was another article by, this one by Margaret Ruth, on intuitive scanning. So this is on medical intuitives. You guys ever hear of this? Mm-mm. So they're basically yes. psychics who say they could, yeah, they, they could read your body energy. They could see the, where the, the energy isn't flowing, and they make their diagnosis based mm. upon that. It's, I don't need a just, doctor anymore. Also. Yeah, right. It's just another form of cold reading. You guys are probably not girls, and so you don't know that on Oprah, <laughs> med- medical health intuitives are everywhere. Uh, like the big one is Dr. Christiane Northrup, and um, she is presented as this this great gynecologist who's going to teach all the women in the audience to get in touch with their inner woman and it's mm-hmm. all about health and I know, it's just such BS and, yeah. and it, yeah it's it's about empowerment and it, it's it's sold to women as something that they're like we're just supposed to accept because it's going to make us feel special and good about our vaginas and mm-hmm. uh, so I think that these medical intuitives focus mostly on women and uh, often to our detriment because it's basically just psychic in a nicer term that's not as, you know, woo sounding. Can they help me get in touch with my inner woman? You you can't go within 30 feet of your inner woman, so they probably can't help you. Oh. Okay. It's like a restraining order. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, before we get off the topic of Huffington Post, we have to talk about Jim friggin' Carey. Well, right? that's where I'm going next. Yeah, so then today, Jim Carey... Ugh graduates from just being the boyfriend of an anti-vaccinationist kook to being a full-fledged anti-vax kook himself. Oh, no. Yeah, he wrote this long article, just, uh, you know, the judgment on vaccines is in, three, quest- three question marks. And he, <laughs> you know, he repeats the standard talking points of the day of the anti-vax movement, you know, right down the line. It's really disgusting. I think all the points we've we've pretty much already addressed before, but I noticed in particular he uh, repeats the the toxin gambit. He writes, while ingredients like aluminum, mercury, ether, formaldehyde, and Uh antifreeze may help preserve and enhance vaccines, they can be toxic as well. Ether and, and antifreeze are not in vaccines. That has been debunked for months publicly to McCarthy and, and Kerry. And the fact that he continues to repeat that demonstrable lie really shows you know, how intellectually you know, devoid th- this whole thing is. Formaldehyde, we make formaldehyde in our own bodies in greater amounts than it's in vaccines. Next, <laughs> viruses. You get, we get more viruses just by getting colds and just by the, from the environment than, than what you're getting in vaccines. It really Next. is an insignificant addition to the overall uh, exposure of our immune systems. It's just highly, highly targeted. I, I don't know, Steve. He's an actor making like $20 million a movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I know what you say. You have... 
you have facts and data, but he's you know, got, he's yeah, it's always got all the, cons- the conspiracy theory stuff going. Yeah, he's just talking out his ass. It's all the conspiracy mongering things again, fear mongering. It's it's total crap and nothing new. What qualifies him to do, to even to even put these words down? It's re- uh, so presum- so, presum- <laughs> so presumptuous. Oh my gosh, self importance. It's, it's the arrogance of ignorance. He's oh. too ignorant to realize how ignorant he is, and therefore that leads to excessive arrogance in his own opinions. Horrific. Well, Steve, this guy, J.B. Handley, man, he, he thinks you're an idiot. Yeah, I'm getting there. You want me, you want me to go to that one next? <laughs> well, yeah, know. we might as well jump right to that because right. he's pretty much Jim Carrey, only focused on you. Very good segues tonight. I applaud <laughs> we'll you all, by the way. So... J.P. Handley is the founder of a website called The Age of Autism, which is a notorious anti-vaccination site and organization. Uh, now, the, the front people for that site is uh, Jenny McCarthy and Jim Carrey. Handley basically allowed them to take the, the, the front position because they're famous, you know, even though he founded it. Somehow, he, he discovered that I write blog entries about the anti-vaccination movement. He just discovered who I am. And that prompted him to write a a really mean, low, disgusting personal attack against me. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's really objectionable. Yeah, it was remarkably base. And like, for instance, attacking the fact that, you know, he goes on Yale's website and finds that Steve deals with uh, botulism in order to, to, you know, used as an actual treatment. Right. And then he talks about how... Uh, scary and evil botulism is and the funny thing is like I'm reading over this I'm like hi Jenny McCarthy injects it into her face right <laughs> like, oh god so that's How? that's about the level of uh. of what he was doing he's basically trying to say to impugn my I don't know my reputation my professionalism my credibility by saying that I inject people with, with Botox, with botulinum toxin, and how awful and toxic and dangerous it is, uh, and also that it's used for cosmetic purposes, even though it's, it's completely obvious from the very sources he was quoting, you know, the Yale website, that I, don't, that I don't use it for cosmetic purposes, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I'm a neurologist. I use it for neurological indications. But somehow cosmetic he tries to tie me to the fact that I'm using the same drug that's also used by other people for cosmetic purposes. It's just a huge non sequitur, and it's obvious he's just trying to smear me with whatever he thinks he can grab onto. Wow. It was totally pathetic. But the good news is that he does such a bad job of it, and he totally <laughs> exposes his, o- his own ignorance so completely that it was it was a pleasure for me to dismantle his nonsense. And can, can I can I just point out too, like uh, before he even gets to you know he does eventually get around to the the facts, like addressing the actual facts that you bring up about uh, autism mm-hmm. and vaccines. But in addition to the botulism thing, he also uh, opens up by saying that uh, your particular work has nothing to do with autism your work is something else entirely even though that yes you know you do have all this training but it's not in the specific fields of vaccinations and then he goes on to say that he as a business major is somehow qualified more so than you are to to comment on this i just that was just jaw-dropping to me. Like, yeah, it was a direct uh, contradiction. It gets like the kettle defense. Right. He's grasping at yeah. anything. He says, 
this novella guy doesn't know what he's talking about because even though he's a neurologist, he is not an expert in autism or vaccines. And then he goes on to say, and those experts don't know anything. I know better because I have street smarts and, I, and I'm a businessman. So right. does expertise matter or not? It matters when you want it to matter, but for me, but not for you. You know, people should listen to you with no science training, but not me, because I only have some science training. It doesn't make any sense. Does he have Jenny McCarthy's mommy instinct? Yeah, he has autism instincts. Yeah, right. After reading Hanley's article, I would really appreciate it if he didn't do a personal attack to the level that he did. It's one thing to take a jab here and there or whatever, but he does take it too far, and I really would like him to just go blow for blow and, and really go back and forth with you, Steve, and take the points for what they are and let you guys argue over them or discuss them. But, you know, he, br- he brings it down to, to a level where, you know, you, you just get insulted when you read it. Yeah. But, Jay, he can't stand toe-to-toe with me on the points. He can't because he, he doesn't have the points. He, so we did, that's why he goes through this long, non-sequitur, ad hominem attack and makes up stuff. This is the level of the stuff that he's getting at. He says, looking at his biography on Wikipedia, which he undoubtedly wrote himself. Now, I got to say, <laughs> I love it when people are absolutely certain about something that's demonstrably false. So what I so like in my blog response I wrote I said this is a small point in itself but it reveals Hanley's intellectual laziness and clear bias. He tries to imply something about my ego by expressing his lack of doubt that I wrote my Wikipedia entry. Apparently Handley lacks the internet chops or the minimal intellectual curiosity it would have taken to click the history tab on my Wikipedia page. <laughs> if he had he would have seen that the entry was contributed to by many people none of them me. Nice. One well, click right. away, one click away, and he couldn't even do that. So, you know, when I'm going to tear somebody down, I make sure I get my ducks in a row, right? I make sure I have the actual facts on my side. He obviously does not care about the facts. He can't be bothered to spend one click, you know, before he can, he can justify a, a, an accusation that he wants to make. But eventually, after these ridiculously irrelevant attempts at smearing me, he gets to the actual blog entry and the points that I was making, and he completely blows it. And I, again, I love it when people blow it to this extent. After calling me arrogant and going all through that all relevant stuff and some conspiracy stuff with the CDC, then, then he comes back to my study, right? And, he, and his, he, again, he missed all of my actual points. And, and I, w- I was criticizing in my article a new a new initiative by the anti-vaccine movement called this 14 Studies website, where they take the 14 big studies, and it's not that there are only 14 studies, but they're like, there are 14 pr- pr- prominent studies that we say show a lack of correlation between MMR or, or thimerosal or vaccines and autism, and they basically try to shoot them down. They do that by completely rigging the game. They come up with these bogus criteria, which, I mean, and literally the criteria are things that are amount to we don't think they're asking the right question, and we've criticized it before, therefore it's been criticized. So that takes, that's points against it. Or the, you know, the, the, the trivial conflicts of interest that they say they use to dismiss any study. Oh, that was funded by the CDC, and they hate, you know, they hate uh, kids and, and like vaccines, so that, that's biased. 
so that they so they completely trump up this com- ridiculous scale in order to to criticize all of these studies, and they completely misrepresent them. So David Gorsky and I wrote a pair of blog entries on science based medicine. David set it up with showing how ridiculous their criteria were and, and went through a number of the studies and I did some follow up commentary and and focused on just one study that david didn 't cover. This was a, a Danish study which showed that looked at like thirty years of data and, and thousands of kids and showed that autism rates were flat in the in the seventies and eighties and during that time right in the middle of that time the um, the amount of uh, thimerosal was almost cut in half around 1970, but that didn't have any effect on autism rates. And then in 1991, thimerosal was removed completely from vaccines in Denmark. And then in 1992, autism rates started to increase. They obviously were not increasing because of thimerosal, because the thimerosal had already been taken out of the vaccines. So what does this show? It shows that the autism diagnostic rates increased in Denmark even after thimerosal was removed. So, so you can't, uh, it doesn't make sense to blame the same increase going on at the same time in the United States on the presence of thimerosal, but that's exactly what the anti-vaccination movement did. It also showed that dropping the dose almost in half didn't, didn't affect autism rates. So there's essentially no correlation in this data between what was happening with the thimerosal and these vaccines, or the vaccine schedule itself, and autism. What was happening was the same phenomenon that was happening in, in Western you know, industrialized nations was it changes in the definition of autism and the surveillance for autism over the same exact period of time caused autism rates to increase. So that's, that's the point that I made. Hanley doesn't actually address any of those points. What he does is he focuses on a mistake that he thinks that I made and tries to make it seem like I'm an idiot because of this, right? I said that, uh, that, autism, that autism rates in Denmark were similar to that in the United States. Handley says, but if he had read the paper, like a, f- a fifth grader who read the paper could have seen that the autism rates in Denmark were only 5 per 10,000, while in the United States they were 60 to 80 or 60 to 100 per, per 10,000. Therefore, Novella thinks they're similar because there was a 20 to 25-fold increase. Right, so he goes on and on about what an idiot I am because I, I or I, or liar or whatever. But here's the thing: he was comparing incidence rates in Denmark to prevalence rates in the United States. Right, the incidence is how many kids of a certain age group in one year are newly diagnosed with autism. Prevalence rates were how many people are there right now who have autism. Prevalence rates are usually depending on how how chronic or long-lasting a diagnosis would be, are much higher than incidence rates. So guess what? The prevalence rates are the same in Denmark over the same periods of time as they were in the United States. There are about 80 per 10,000 in in the year 2000 in Denmark, About again, about 80 to 100 in the United States. They're similar. They're about the same. He completely blew it by, by comparing incidence to prevalence. So after going through this all this argument about how experts don't necessarily know what they're talking about and he has street smarts and that matters most, he makes an absolutely rookie mistake because he doesn't understand how to look at statistics and he gets it completely wrong. Sounds and like he set up a pretty big straw man there too. He did, yeah. So, I mean, oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, he, I mean, he handed that to me on a silver platter. You know. Thank you. That, that it doesn't get more clear cut than that, and I was able to pro- you know, provide references which he didn't bother to do, showing that they were basically the same in uh, in the U.S. and Denmark. And again, that's actually a side point; it's actually not relevant to the points I was making. It just shows that 
He's not being. He's intellectually lazy. He is. His scholarship is absolutely sloppy. He's completely biased, and he's just you know cherry picking whatever factoids he thinks he can grab onto, whether or not they're they're actually accurate or real, in order to make his point. Well, at least he's got that business degree to fall back on. So I challenged him to publicly correct that accusation or further expose his intellectual dishonesty. What do you? What's your guess, Steve? What, what's going to happen? Uh, he'll either he'll either ignore my reply, or he'll just write something even more ridiculous. I mean, sometimes he backs down, meaning just by ignoring it if he if he gets called out. But he's not engaged in a, in a real intellectual discussion, right? Like Jay asked, shouldn't you guys just go point for point? Yeah, Jay. If we were, you know, we are, but if they were interested in the, in the truth and actually understanding the data and coming to some kind of mutual understanding. We, we can settle our differences. Our differences are about evidence and science. What is, you know, I want to know if, if vaccines are causing autism. I have no stake in this. I have no dog in, in this hunt, right? I, just, I want to know what the truth is. And, I'm, I, and I, I just understand that you, know, you need to look at scientific evidence to figure out what the truth is. If they were interested in that too, we could settle our differences, absolutely. But they're not interested in that. They're not interested in, in what's real or what's true. They're, they're, it's really a cult, and I'm not using that lightly. They're absolutely an ideological cult. They're completely insular. It's them against the world. They're the army of light. We're the we're evil. You know, we're all in the in the pockets of big pharma. We're either inept or or corrupt. That's it. That's a black and white world. That's how they see it. And if you think I'm overstating it, go read the comments to Handley's article. Read his oh article. Oh my god! And then read the comments. And you will see an echo chamber of cult-like insular paranoia and this self-righteous accusations. It's yeah. The only thing really missing is a, plate of, is a plate of cookies and a vat of Kool-Aid. That is all that is missing <laughs> right. from this. Right. I like what he said uh, in his in his article. I'm not intellectually intimidated by any of these jokers talking about Steve and other educated doctors. Yeah. Their degrees mean Zippo to me because I knew plenty of knuckleheads in college who went on to be doctors, and they're still knuckleheads. Jay, did he write educated or edumacated? Edumacated. <laughs> Is that like the argument from anti-authority? Yeah, basically. <laughs> it's, an, it's, it's basically playing the elitism card, and he uses the term elite often. That's always a red flag. It's like people who, have, yeah. who pretend to have any kind of expertise or knowledge are just being elitist. And, but they could be idiots, too. And, and, and it's really us guys. We know what's really going on because we have street smarts. Of course, then he demonstrates that he doesn't know what's going on. And he, he makes really <laughs> simple-minded mistakes that no self-respecting scientist would make. So it's just you beautiful. So, I mean, again, it's, it, I wear these kind of personal attacks as a, from people like him as a badge of honor. You know, it's just like earning your skeptical bones, basically getting, getting taken, <laughs> taken down like this. But it's... It, it, he so fully exposed his own hypocrisy and his own uh, intellectual laziness that it, it's gold, really. I mean, it really for anyone who is not already a true believer and who, who has the ability to see this for what it is, it, it's, it really was a, an amazing display. So, uh, Evan, tell us about this little legal trouble that Kellogg has gotten itself into. Yeah, a little, like you said, a little legal trouble. But first, I'll take you back in the time machine a little bit. Back to July of 2008, when I was one night shopping for groceries in the grocery store. And I came across, well, I was down the breakfast cereal aisle, and I was 
getting some Cheerios for my daughter. She likes her favorite. And then there's the package right next to it, Kellogg's Frosted Mini Wheats. And on the front of the cover, cover of the box, it says, clinically shown to improve kids' attentiveness by nearly 20%. That's a pretty bold claim, wouldn't you say? 20%. 20%. Clinically seems shown. seems like a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what they, they, they showed that if kids eat it, they're 20% more attentive in school? Well, this is what the box said, Jay. And then there's a little, there was a little footnote, which took me a long time to find on the, bo- on the box. Because you have to turn the box around. You're looking for the little footnote, about which probably explains what this clinical study is and so forth. And there's all kinds of distractions, like games to play. And, and, and you're easily distracted. It, well, you, you know, I mean, they're fun. I mean, all these, you know, word games and other puzzles on the back. So, you know, after doing all, completing all of those, I finally found the footnote way, 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 way at the bottom. And uh, the footnote read this. The combination of Kellogg's Frosted Mini Wheats, eight layers of whole grains and fiber, work together to keep kids full so they can stay focused throughout the morning. Fiber helps slow down the eating process and may contribute to a feeling of being full. Whole grains slow digestion of carbohydrates to release energy over a longer period of time. So the kids aren't distracted by being hungry. Was that their justification for it? Right. And their cereal is is what did it for them. So... You know, so I, I delved into it a little bit more, and you know, you go and you find out that what their what their study was, their clinical tests or their clinical trials, whatever they did was, were performed by Kellogg's. Yeah, <laughs> of course, it was not some sort of in, it, there was no independent verification of any of this. This was their own processes yeah. that they went through, and th- that's what they came up with based upon independent clinical research, right? Which is Kellogg's. Uh, they said they had. Kids who had this cereal had an 18% better attentiveness over, for three hours after they ate breakfast compared to kids who ate no breakfast, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I thought to myself, well, what the heck? I mean, you know, that, duh. I mean, what's the difference between that and, you know, having a piece of fruit or yeah. having some other cereal or anything probably would have caused a difference in attentiveness as opposed to kids who eat nothing? Well, April 20th. And if you go to the FTC, Federal Trade Commission's website, and you read their, their title of their article, Kellogg settles FTC charges that ads for frosted mini-wheats were, in fact, false. Mm-hmm. Yep. The FTC, yep. Flat out false. The FTC got them. Yep. They were false. Whoa. So here's, here's what the first paragraph reads. The Kellogg's company, world's leading producer of cereal, agreed to settle FTC charges that advertising claims touting the breakfast cereal which was clinically shown to improve kids' attentiveness by nearly 20%, were false and violated federal law. Did, did, did it disclose the amount that they like of a fine or anything? It hasn't been determined yet. Uh, it's to be, to be determined. Yeah, I mean, the FTC's been doing a good job of cracking down on this kind of stuff because, you know, any company could do these worthless in-house studies, cl- make some claims and say that they're clinically proven uh, and have really little at risk for that. Um, the, my com- my complaint, though, which I always bring up when we talk about these types of, of topics, is that the fines are never big enough. Then they never really amount to yeah. a deterrent. It's a cost yeah. of business. Yeah, it just it comes down to the cost of doing business, but but not really a deterrent. I mean, it has to be the kind of thing where we, we want companies, you know, company executives to think, oh, if we get caught, you know, by this for the FTC, it's gonna, this is going to cost us more money than it's worth. So we just can't risk doing it. We got to keep things on the up and up. And you know, a big a big company like Kellogg, you know, obviously they make lots of products. Mm-hmm. It's on every everyone's shelves and so they forth. They kind of have a wholesome I, reputation, but they're still just another company. 
Did they really? Need, I wonder how many more boxes of this cereal they wound up selling because of the claim. And if, in right. the end, if it was it was really worth it, maybe it was. I you know, I don't know how many people actually paid yeah. attention to they uh, do to that claim and 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 bought it based on that. I imagine it was successful, and, and that I'm they sure did. they have very and very good it, data on that. That's something that companies do well. Joining us now is Seth Shostak. Seth, welcome back to the Skeptics Guide. It's a pleasure to be here. And Seth is a senior astronomer at the SETI Institute, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And you've been there for how long have you been there uh, yeah. now? You know, I have to think back. I think it was 1990 that I first joined the SETI Institute, uh, plus or minus one year. So that's astronomical accuracy. <laughs> <laughs> so, and how's it going? Well, I mean, you know, this is a this is one of those quests which, uh, you know, is a bit uncertain. It's not not for sure that you're actually yeah. going to find something. But uh, on the other hand, if you do, it would be very exciting. And there are always new ideas. People have the idea that uh, you know SETI is very repetitive. We're just sitting around with earphones on day after day, and of course, it's nothing like that. But there are new ideas. There's new equipment. There are new approaches, and there's new data, like uh, you know, planets that have been found and so forth. So it's endlessly exciting. You're still happy that you went that route with your career? Yes, I am, because it does give me a lot of uh, a lot of freedom to do a lot of different things. Actually, I I am happy with it. Um, it's a great group of people. As I say, it's almost a privilege. Well, it is a privilege to be able to work on a question that's. Everybody, just about everybody, is interested in, and, and uh, we happen to be at a good time in history when you might be able to answer that question. So, you know, as I say, it's it's kind of nice to be able to do that. I could have been, you know, I could be doing air conditioning repair or something like that. <laughs> right. Probably more lucrative, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Seth, a lot of conspiracy-minded people believe that uh, the government is hiding evidence of, of extraterrestrials visiting visiting the Earth. And one of the reasons they invariably give is something like they, didn't want, they don't want to cause a panic. What do you think would be the worldwide reaction uh, to incontrovertible evidence that there is intelligence out there? Well, I don't think that there would be worldwide panic. Look, uh, you know, of course, I don't subscribe. Maybe I shouldn't say of course, but I don't subscribe to this idea that the... Uh, the aliens are visiting Earth, and the government is keeping that from us. But on the other hand, you know, polls show that something like one-third of Americans believe that is true. So it's a very widespread belief, and uh, as far as I could tell, I walked around the streets uh, here today in Mountain View, where I live. I didn't see anybody terribly upset about the fact that Earth is being visited, even though one in three of them think that it's happening. So I can hardly believe that if they picked up the newspapers tomorrow and read that, you know, we'd found a signal coming from very far away, that they right, would say, right. well, all right, that's reason enough to panic. I'm, I'm headed for the streets, uh, you know, give me my cherry bombs and whatever else I need to riot in the streets. Pitchforks and torches. Yeah, but that is such a standard of the, the UFO believe, believer culture, the, the notion that the, uh, the purpose for the conspiracy is to prevent panic in the streets, which was never a compelling argument for me. No. But, uh, you were on, I believe it was um, Larry King... Maybe about six months or so ago. Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Uh, I remember that stuck out because you did such a wonderful job. I have to say, um, it's so hard as the being in the role of the skeptic to keep cheery and positive, but I think you pull that off wonderfully. 
So do you enjoy going up against the true believers in the UFO or other areas? Well, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> I think there are good things about it, and there are some things that aren't necessarily so good. The good thing is that you get to present your side of, of the story, really, because the people who are saying that, look, the aliens are here, the government has the evidence, they've got it stacked up at Area 51 or some such place, right? Uh, they're, they're pretty good at presenting that argument. They're very vocal. And, of course, if you're making a TV show about aliens, you know, these guys have got the goods. They, they're, they're claiming the aliens not only exist, but they're here. Now, yeah. you've got to say that story trumps the SETI story every time. The SETI story is, well, we think they're out there, but uh, actually we haven't found them yet. Well, right. yawn. I mean, come on, would you, <laughs> would you rather have the opportunity of improving your social life by having aliens haul you out of your bedroom at night? You know, if they're not here, then at least, you know, you, you don't get that opportunity. And, and it might not appeal to everyone, but if you're kind of lonely, maybe it does. I, I don't know. But <laughs> in any event, so that's, you know, there's, there's a reason that that story is so well told and so often told, because it's a more compelling story. But on the other hand, I, I think that people should also be exposed to the fact that very few scientists are convinced by the evidence. It, it isn't impossible that they could be here, although I often wonder why they're here now. But that isn't impossible. But on the other hand, if you're going to make that claim, then let's see the good evidence. And I don't think the evidence is very good. Sure, but do you find that challenging to to make the, the real science as exciting as the fake stuff in, in a public venue? Well, challenging. I mean, yeah, I guess it is challenging. Um, you know, I, I happen to like explaining science to the public. There are a lot of people that find that an interesting thing to do, not particularly special there. But, yes, it's it's a challenge to keep people interested, particularly not the ones that are already into this stuff. But if you're yeah. on a show like Larry King, you know, there are tens of millions of viewers out there who would just as soon see Paris Hilton talk about something as you. And so that's where the real challenge is. The challenge is not in making it interesting for people who are into the whole idea of space or UFOs or anything like that. The, the challenge in, in a venue like that is, can you make this interesting and possibly even educational? Terrible word to use, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> to, to, to all the rest of the people who, as I say, would rather, you know, watch uh, championship bowling. Seth, part of the reason why we wanted to get you on the show this week was to talk about a, a recent uh, op-ed that you wrote for the New York Times in which you advocate robotic exploration of other solar systems. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, this all derived from a, a much uh, simpler article, a shorter article that I had written for Space.com, uh, the website there. You know, that one simply pointed out the same thing I pointed out in the New York Times article, which was uh, somewhat uh, more refined, but that we have this idea that before the end of the century or whatever, we're going to send people into deep space, not not to the moon or Mars, but that, you know, our destiny is to go to the stars. Well, that may be. I mean, I, I'd be the last one to argue against that. At some point, we probably have to go to the stars. You know, another couple of billion years, the sun's going to start going funny in a serious way. You right. know, have strong motivation to get out of the neighborhood. But, you know, in the near future, near might mean 100, 200 years, something like that. I think it's very difficult because the distances are enormous. But the point was, simply an observation that our remote sensing technology, our ability to send robots that function as our eyes and ears and any other part of your anatomy that you want, that technology is improving much, much faster than our rocket technology. So it just seemed to me that, well, you know, sending ourselves into space, that's hard and it takes a long time to get there and it's dangerous and 
people probably will want to, you know, return ticket and so forth. But sending robots that would allow us to explore these distant places, uh, you know, in a sort of a virtual reality way, well, that kind of technology is almost here now. So the thought was, let's let's go to the stars, but let's not wait 500 or 1,000 years or whatever it might take. Let, let's go there earlier with our uh, with our remote sensors. So how much easier would it be to send a robot to a nearby system as opposed to a human being? Well, for any given rocket, of course, the, the lighter you make it, I mean, the energy of the rocket is fixed, okay, and the energy gives you mv squared. In other words, if you can, if you can have the weight, then you get, you know, 40% more speed, right? If you can reduce the weight by 100, you get 10 times the speed and so forth. So one of the advantages of sending uh, robotic sensors rather than people is that they don't need to weigh as much as people. Now, it isn't that people weigh so much. Well, actually, these days they do. But, you, <laughs> you know, I mean, people are a couple hundred pounds. But, you know, you need all this life support. You need the food, the water, the, you know, the, all the stuff, the air, Plus, they want to come back. Yeah, and if they want to come back, that's right. You got to worry about that too. The <laughs> robots don't insist on that, at least so far. And so, so you can make them really small. I mean, you can send something the size of a watermelon or a grapefruit that might do really a really good job of making photos for you. And and you know maybe not today, but ten years from now or twenty years from now, you you could probably do that without too much too much effort. Well, right, that's right. A, that, you know that's a heck of a lot smaller payload, which means that any given rocket could be shot at much higher speed. And so that's the idea. It can get there, you know, in uh, 50 years or whatever with with the kind of rocket that you can envision today. And, you know, sending a person for 50 years in a rocket, that's that's a lot harder. Now, although it was my understanding that using any kind of propulsion technology, if you have to carry your fuel with you, the weight of the fuel is the vast majority of the total weight that you'd be carrying, not the payload. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, there's something called the rocket equation, and it was worked out really, I mean, it's just some, you know, elementary physics, and it was worked out more than 100 years ago. And indeed, you're right, the, the final speed that you can reach, you know, the, the, the terminal velocity, if you will, they call it, how fast your rocket is actually going to cruise between here and there depends on two things. It depends on how fast you're shooting whatever it is you're shooting out the back, Right on the one hand, you know, our chemical rockets shoot hot gas out the back, and it, you know, it moves at hundreds of miles an hour, thousands of miles an hour, something like that. But an ion rocket might might shoot stuff out the back, you know, a hundred thousand times faster than that. And a photon rocket, which just has a flashlight on the back, you know, would be sh- shooting stuff out at the speed of light. So those can get to much higher velocities. The other thing that counts is how much fuel you have on board, indeed, because obviously the more fuel you have. You know, the, uh, you, know, you can get it up to higher speed because you can keep burning the rockets longer. Right, now, right. you know, it's true that if you look at the kind of rockets that take off routinely from the uh, the coast of Florida there, you know, they're mostly fuel. It's mostly what the rocket is. It's just fuel, a whole yeah, lot of yeah. fuel, very little uh, payload up there. So, so the, there, oh, while there would be an advantage to sending a small robot versus the life support system of a cabin for humans, the fuel is still ultimately the limiting factor, you think? Well, it is for the kind of rockets we talk about today, but, you know, there are other designs. There are things called solar sails, for example, which, you know, are kind of what the name says they are, just big sails and sunlight uh, blows on them, not wind, of course. In, in space, the, the breeze is kind of restricted. But, you know, just the, the light, and, and if you sort of sail around the sun, you get close to the sun, you can get a big push from the sun, 
Okay, so in that case, you're not taking any fuel, but you do need a very big sail. So, you know, there's kind of a engineering challenge there. Another thing you can consider doing is having a rocket that just scoops up the gas between the stars and, you know, ignites it. I mean, it's mostly hydrogen, so you sort of have a hydrogen bomb kind of rocket, and you just have a big scoop on the front, and it scoops up this hydrogen gas, so, you know, you, you have endless fuel. It's like a horse. Is that a bussard ramjet, they call that? Yeah, bussard ramjet, indeed. And, you know, so just in the way a horse always can find fuel right in front of it, uh, so could this. The trouble is that those scoops have to be tremendously large, right, many right. miles across, so, you know, that's, that's a bit of a problem. And another way to do it is to uh, to maybe have a solar sail, but have a laser, or, or, or just a mirror on the back of your rocket. You get your rocket up into space, and then it's just got a mirror in the back, and you use a powerful laser on the Earth to bounce light off that mirror, and it turns out that'll push your rocket too. The trouble with that is somebody on the ground has to keep you <laughs> keep working this laser. Mm-hmm. And if, for example, you have a budget cut or something, guys say, "Well, we got to turn this laser off. We can't afford the power anymore." Um, you know, the guys in the rocket might not appreciate that. And, and even uh, even a laser beam would attenuate after you know, hundreds and millions of miles. Uh, what's how far would a, would a laser actually be helpful for uh, for a solar sail? It could, what if you got out to Jupiter, Pluto? Yeah, no, that's a good point. But on the other hand, keep in mind you only have to accelerate it, you know, till you get it up to a decent speed, which might all right, happen right. fairly close to the Earth, and then after that you just cruise. Now, there is the problem of coming back. <laughs> it might not be right, some, right. you know, uh, handy aliens with a laser at the other end. Right. That's right. That's that's a, that sounds like a one-way trip. Yeah. But what was most intriguing for me, though, what was most intriguing in the article was the, you mentioned the specifically the nuclear-powered rockets, which to me, uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by them. It's just something that seems... So close. I mean, we've actually built working uh, nuclear rockets uh, in, I believe it was in the 50s and 60s, and, and but there was a, a nuclear test ban, yeah, the partial test ban treaty, which outlawed outer space um, nuclear weapons, seemed to pretty much kill it. And to me, it seems like such a no-brainer, not just for these little microprobes to other star systems, but for, for humans to use in within our solar system. It just seems so much far superior to to chemical rockets, and we're just not doing anything with it. It's so frustrating. Well, it is, and uh, yeah, I had mentioned that in my article because it seems like an obvious technology that you could adapt to this idea of, you know, send the robots rather than us to the stars, and we'll experience the stars robotically. It's true that, uh, in fact, Freeman Dyson, a very well-known physicist now at the Institute of Advanced Study in in, uh, Princeton, uh, was working on this project. I think he said in a recent New York Times piece that it was, you know, the best time of his life or something. But, you know, uh-huh. the, one one way to build these things, a very straightforward way to build them, is just to throw atomic bombs out the back of your rocket and uh, have a big pusher right. plate right. on the back and, you know, just have it explode against that pusher plate and keep pushing you forward. Uh, you can imagine that, you know, such a scheme <laughs> would raise the hackles of a lot of people in society. But heck, if you're you know if you're out in space, who cares if you're detonating atomic bombs? So right. that was an easy way to do it, and it, it I'm sure it would work. And, and there's other schemes as well, uh, using uh, using the heat from the uh, the nuclear engine to heat uh, hydrogen, and then use that as the uh, exhaust gas. And uh, there's lots of other ways to do it. Uh, I'm just uh, I'm just waiting for the day when they they finally say, "Yep, okay, let's do it again." We really need this technology. Yeah, you're right. And and as you, as you've already alluded to, there there've been plenty of good designs. 
And the answer to this, as is the answer to so many questions in the whole field of space travel, is somebody has to be willing to write the check. NASA barely has enough money to yeah. uh, you know, build new spacecraft to put people up to the International Space Station. So, you know, this just isn't on the front burner. So, so clearly you're an advocate of robotic exploration uh, for other stellar systems. Yes. And I agree. It's going to be a long time before we're going to figure out how to send, make it plausible to send people. And I, and I also agree that probably the near-term most viable technology for that would be nuclear-powered engines. But what what are your thoughts, and we've had a lot of debate about this, what, what are your thoughts about exploration of our own solar system? Do you think we should also rely exclusively or heavily on robots, or should we be trying to put people on the moon, on Mars, and, and are populating our own solar system? Well, that's a, the endless debate, you know. <laughs> Why are we sending people to Mars? Let's just send them to hardware. It rolls around Mars for, you know, years at a time. And, uh, you know, it doesn't, doesn't need to come back, and it doesn't need all the usual things you need for human life and all that stuff, and it's not dangerous. Uh, that's all true. On the other hand, for example, if you're looking for life on Mars, well, it's said that a human geologist would be going through the, the rocky landscape there at least ten times faster than any rover could. And so, you know, it, it might be that there are just a lot of jobs for which humans are still really much better. Uh, when it comes to exploring something like the surface of Mars. But but I think that the real issue is not so much that. I think the real issue is this. We, we you know, we want to go to Mars uh, partly because we just, you know, that's sort of wired into us. But it's also the case that within 50 years, 100 at the most, I think, uh, we have to start getting some people off this planet because either that or we have to, you know, kind of stagnate because we obviously can't have an indefinite increase in the population. That's an old story. You know, there's, there's some level of population where you say, you know, more than this, and we really can't support them on the planet. But also, there are lots of problems with materials. There, there are things that you tend to run out of, and of course you'll recycle things, but, but there are things that you do use up. So at some point, either you start moving some of the population off the Earth, or you accept a stagnant society, and I, I think that's a dangerous society. Maybe we can maybe we can bring some resources to the Earth, like some put some asteroids in orbit and start mining them. That could help. Yeah, well, that's true. That's that's true. That's not a bad idea. And of course, the moon is not a bad source of some things. I mean, if you you know you just need stuff for building, for example, rotating aluminum cans in space, an idea that's as it were been floating around for at least uh, thirty-five years now. There's plenty of aluminum on the moon, and plenty of bauxite, anyhow, and uh, there's plenty of solar energy. You can make, I don't know whether it made it into the final article or not, but I had suggested in the original version of that article that appeared in the New York Times that I could imagine the moon is becoming, if you will, like China, a big manufacturing base, and, uh, you know, the, the products are just sent, sent to the earth. But that's for the future, but not the distant future. That's all foreseeable. Yeah. Right. So, so you defined the debate, but you didn't really take a side. I'm curious if you think that it's worth the investment to put people into, into space, even if it's just in our solar system. Yeah, I think in our solar system it is. And, and if, uh, let me just give you a really simple reason. You talk to kids. You know, you say, well, would you like to be involved in a project to send uh, motorized skateboards to Mars, or would you like to go to Mars? Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. There's a difference in motivation there. I, I agree. Uh, I'm totally in your camp on that. Although, just to say what the other side is, I think we had Bob Park on our show, and he said 
that the the next generation, these kids that we're talking about, are going to be very comfortable experiencing the world virtually. And just as you were talking about uh-huh. having a virtual presence by, via these robots and other solar systems, kids of you know, the next generation, you know, sending a robot, being virtually on Mars, maybe they will be good with that. Yeah, well, I, I, I hope so, because, of course, it's, it's simpler. There's some, there are a lot of worlds in our own solar system, of course, that uh, really you, you can't send people to. You're not going to send people to the surface of Jupiter, for example. But what if you want to just walk around the surface of Venus? Well, that's tough if you're going to do it yeah. with real people, because it's pretty, pretty toasty on yeah. Venus. Right? Robotic, you know, robotic craft could do it, and, and you just build up this huge database, I mean, it's sort of like, uh, do you want to be a car thief? You know, well, Grand Theft Auto, you can be a car thief without actually landing in jail. <laughs> right. so, so here you can explore Venus without having your epidermis singed. Right, right. Oh, there's, def- there's definitely going to be a, a necessary role for robotic exploration. There's no question about that. But then the big problem, that one that I was really really depressed me for a while when, when I realized, I read that article in Scientific American about just getting getting humans to Mars the, the cosmic rays and the solar radiation would just would just fry the astronauts, and they've got to figure out either how to get shielding around the ship, which would be, of course, very expensive with the launch costs. Well, that's a, it's certainly true that you have that danger. How dangerous it is is somewhat controversial. You can you know read Bob Zubrin's books on this, and he doesn't think it's quite the problem that a lot of other people do. And he says really? one thing you can do is you put a sort of a storm cellar on board your rocket to Mars. Right, which is sort of a closet that's, you know, kind of small but lead-lined or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when you see the solar storm coming, and you, you get some advance warning because you can see optically that there's a flare on the sun before the particles right. arrive. So you have, you know, some time there. And then you just duck into this storm cellar and you wait it out, and it takes a couple of hours before it passes. And then, okay, maybe it's not very comfy in there, but on the other hand, uh, you could do it. But but what about the cosmic radiation though? You you couldn't predict the cosmic radiation. No, cosmic radiation is sort of this steady uh, steady drip, if you will. And that's uh, except it's not a drip; it's sort of a hard splash. <laughs> and uh, yeah, well, I mean, there is there is the question of how dangerous that is, you know. And it's certainly something that needs to be looked at if it requires that you shield the ship, you know, all the time. Well, that's tough. But I don't think that that's considered a real showstopper. These this radiation. I mean, it's going to make a problem for you on Mars if you're living there, because now you've got to be indoors a lot and right. all that stuff. But, you know, there are other ways to beat that. You just have to fix Mars. But that's, that's a bigger project. Seth, one last question. You were uh, the technical advisor for the recent movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Is that correct? That is correct. That sounds like it was a lot of fun. Well, it was a lot of fun, actually. I, I, I greatly enjoyed it. I, I thought I was one of many technical advisors, but I, I'm not sure that's true, actually. I, I given to understand that I was the technical advisor for, you know, the astrobiology and the astronomy and whatever. And uh, in particular, the scene with the Klaatu, played by Keanu Reeves, and, and the earthly scientist, Professor Barnhart, played by John Cleese. I was up there when they were shooting the scene where these two guys duel it out on a blackboard with equations. In fact, I wrote all the equations on the board. Huh. Yeah, that's all my handwriting. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. I read that they were they were asking you uh, questions about life, the universe, and everything. Uh. Well, that was between takes. You see, I was standing around with uh, with Cleese and Keanu Reeves, and Jennifer Connelly was also on the set. She's very nice. Is she as gorgeous as she seems? Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> I looked up pictures of her before I went up there. I had talked to her on the phone several times because yeah. 
she plays an astrobiologist and she wanted some background there. So I went up there and, and I met her for the first time and uh, she doesn't look like the pictures. She's ten times better than oh the pictures. <laughs> but in any case, Cleese and, and, and Reeves were standing around and uh, Keanu, uh, sorry, and Jennifer Connelly was off to the side. They asked me, they said, now Seth, we're here for a purpose, aren't we? We're here for a reason, aren't we? And I know, I wasn't sure why they were asking me because, you know, why should I know? Well, you didn't tell them, did you? <laughs> well, That's I did tell them something. <laughs> they were asking me, I figured they, 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 they suspected, well, if, you, if you're an astronomer and you deal with big stuff, you know, you obviously know the meaning of life. And, you know, I don't follow the logic, but somehow <laughs> there's some logic in there. Uh, what I said was, I, I replied to uh, Cleese, I think, and I said, well, John, if you'd asked the question 100 million years ago, the answer would be, you're just a dinosaur. You know, so, and I said, so I don't think that the answer today would be really much different, except that you're just a hominid. <laughs> right. I love that answer. That's great. <laughs> they didn't love it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think a lot, a lot of people wouldn't like that, but hey, that's <laughs> you're just a hominid. Yeah. And Seth, when you do find definitive proof of alien uh, signal from outer space, you'll come on our show to talk to us about it, right? Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I'll be sitting around, you know, buffing my nails, but I'm... Yeah, you won't be busy if that happens at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you really know the meaning of life then. Yeah, I guess so. Well, maybe they'll tell us, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Seth. Thanks, Okay, Seth. thank you, guys. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. Then I challenge my expert skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everyone okay. ready? Si, senor. S Steve, we're ready. Let's do okay, it. Okay, here we go. Item number one. New research shows that chewing gum is associated with higher academic performance in teens. Item number two. Computer scientists have developed a system for automatic lip reading that is greater than 95% accurate after minimal training. And item number three, engineers have developed a medical ultrasound device that works with a smartphone. Rebecca, go first. Uh, okay, so new research shows that chewing gum is associated with higher academic performance in teens. That makes sense to me because I also know that I've heard that there's studies that have shown that um, fiddling with something uh, or doodling can actually help you pay more attention to say, a boring meeting or something like that. So maybe in that respect, it could help. Computer scientists have developed a system for automatic lip reading that is greater than 95% accurate after minimal training. That one seems suspicious to me because um, lip reading, I, I don't know, that, is, that seems like it would be a highly complex thing because you have to look at a lot of different parts of the mouth, the tongue, and I don't know syntax, put it all together with the language. That seems tricky. Engineers have developed a medical ultrasound device that works with a smartphone. I have no idea what that even means. Like, what does that mean? So you, have an, you know what an ultrasound is? Yeah. But like, they, like, look at babies, you know, in right. pregnant women. So you but why would you need that on your smartphone? Like an like iPhone. If you're Tom Cruise and you want to monitor your feet and inside your I you know, young impregnated wife. Not necessarily about function, right? So the idea is that you, you take a smartphone and you stick it up against a pregnant woman's stomach and you can see the baby. Is that the idea? 
close. The, the idea is you attach this portable ultrasound device to a smartphone, and then the smartphone acts as the monitor. The, the monitor, yeah. Ah. Ah, well, yeah, that, that sounds perfectly useless in a way, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> but plausible. Um, so I'm going to say that uh, automatic lip reading, that seems um, way out there to me. I'll say that that's the fiction. Okay, Jay? New research shows that chewing gum is associated with higher academic performance in teens. Uh, you know, the first thing that I thought of when you read that, Steve, was that, I mean, is it possible that chewing gum, you know, what does it do? It stimulates the production of saliva, and then you're swallowing. You know, I don't think it really increases your heart rate at all. But it, I don't know, there's something about it that seems like it might stimulate something. That could have that effect. That's uh, something there that's I'm curious about. The second one, computer scientists have developed a system for automatic lip reading that is greater than 95% accurate after minimal training. Seems possible, right? 95% accurate lip reading. I'm paying attention to my mouth as it's moving right now, and I don't know. I don't know about that one. Number three, engineers have developed a medical ultrasound device that works with a smartphone. I absolutely believe that. Something about the second one, the uh, the the lip reading one that I don't like, so I'm going to say that one's a fake. Okay, Bob. The chewing gum. Yeah, it sounds plausible that uh, that if you occupy yourself in that way of uh, whether it's chewing gum or or even just tapping a foot or this incessant movement, I, I, it kind of makes sense that you could possibly focus a little better. So that kind of makes sense to me. Uh, number three, the ultrasound device working with a smartphone. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. It's a great idea um, to utilize these uh, use, utilize the smartphones with these portable devices. I mean, every, you know, everyone's got the phones with the with the with the with the little uh, screen on it. So uh, why not use that? Uh, it could really help uh, increase the penetration and availability of of this technology. The second one here about the automatic lip reading. Ninety-five percent definitely sounds uh, too high to me. I, I don't think even people who who've grown up and are familiar with the language would achieve ninety-five percent with minimal tr- with minimal training. Yeah, that, that's just too high. Uh, there's just so much variation in the way people uh, enunciate and move. You know, move their lips. I think that uh, if they hit eighty percent, that would be good. So I'm going to say that is false. Okay, Evan. Um, chewing gum associated with higher academic performance in teens. I, so I just, hang on, I just wanted to point out that Bob used the word probe and penetrate, and Jay just totally didn't pick up on it. But go ahead, Evan. Jay, are you feeling okay? Chewing gum, higher academic performance, and walking skills. All correct. Next, engineers developing a medical <laughs> ultrasound working with a smartphone. Yes. And, therefore, the automatic lip reader. 95% accurate. Bob's right. Way too high. 95% accuracy. So many different shapes, too many different forms, lips, ways people talk. I mean, it's, the variations just seem almost endless, and to get it 95% accurate would be astounding. Almost all right. implausible. So. Okay. So you all agree that new research shows that chewing gum is associated with higher academic performance in teens. And that one is... Science. Yay. Research was conducted wow. at Baylor College of Medicine. Indicates a positive effect from chewing gum on academic performance 
in teenagers. They had higher standardized math test scores and their final grades were better compared to those who didn't, didn't chew gum. And it is that, then this, the idea is in previous research suggests that chewing gum helps reduce stress, improve alertness, and relieve anxiety. Therefore, you can concentrate better. But I do have to say, guess who funded this research? Wrigley. Uh, Trident. The Wrigley Science Institute. Yeah. There you go. Oh, God. Uh. Take that for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. Wrigley is this what they write. Wrigley is committed to advancing and sharing scientific research that explores the benefits of chewing gum. <laughs> I bet they are. <laughs> yeah. No. Wow. Another Kellogg. So I, <laughs> I am a gum chewer. I like to chew gum. Me too. And it, sads, it saddens me to think that if I stopped chewing gum, I'd be a little dumber. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't realize it was a crutch. <laughs> yeah. Number two, computer scientists have developed a system for automatic lip reading that is greater than 95% accurate after minimal training. You guys all thought that that one was the fiction, and that one is the fiction. Yeah. yeah. Good job. Uh, how far along do you think this technology is? I don't think it's even in infancy. Accurate. No, I think it's beyond its infancy. Um, I, I would say they could probably get seventy-five uh, percent accurate with uh, not with more than minimal training. The, the highest I found was fifty percent. Wow, fifty percent. But and the news item that triggered this as the fiction was a breakthrough where they were able to train a, a automatic lip reading. Of course, you know, using a video camera, con- different uh, languages. To, right? Yeah, to a, to, mm-hmm. to a computer to try to have a computer do lip reading, which would be great for surveillance. I mean, just imagine. In any place where you have any security surveillance, you can actually tell what people are saying. Your buddy Jack, your buddy Jack comes up yeah. and you go, "Hi, Jack." <laughs> the cops. But the 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 new little breakthrough was that they were able to get the software to tell what language somebody was speaking, not what they were saying, but what language they were speaking, mm-hmm. and and supports the belief that you know, different languages would have different combinations of of mouth movements and, and tongue movements that were typical of them. Um, so we'll see. We'll see that there's, there are programs that, th- that think that within a few years they might have something usable, something in, you know, over the 90% accuracy range. You, know, you never know. Again, it's, it's, it's hard to, uh, to predict these things. Which means Which that means? engineers <laughs> have developed a medical ultrasound device that works with a smartphone is science. Yeah, this little doohickey is pretty cool. It's yeah. that they had to really miniaturize it and really change everything about how the ultrasounds work so that they would be compatible with a smartphone. But they did it. Plug it in there, and then you got a little portable ultrasound. It's cool. You should see the pictures of it. What about the adapter, Steve? Is it tied to one specific brand of smartphone? Uh, USB. Nice. Oh, it's wow. Cool. Oh, USB. Awesome. Hey, you think you could like hook up an EKG machine or something to your smartphone and get readings on that? The bottom line is that a smartphone is powerful enough now that it could pretty yeah. much do any of these things as long as you had the the adapter, as long as it could, you had and the a software. device. Yeah, you have the software and, and you had a compatible device to to a peripheral you know device to hook into it. It's the, you know, I don't think you're going to be doing MRIs anytime soon. You know, no. with a smartphone, but. EKG is nothing. EEG, you know, digital EEG, you know, dig- any, any of these little digital things you could do. I, absolutely, Th- this of course could, would have a lot of applications in in the field and you cost know. savings too. Imagine, I mean, we are, we we are getting closer and closer to the uh, Doctor McCoy medical device where you wave it over somebody <laughs> and, and you get. The Isn't that crazy? I mean, honestly, it's awesome. Fifteen, twenty years ago. There was things in science fiction that just seemed so far out there and so like, oh, yeah, as if. Mm. Yeah. And look at what's going on today. It is is pretty exciting. Uh, I kind of blew it off as being useless, um, but that's 
only from a first world perspective, I think. But reconsidering it, something like that would be very handy for, say, um, doctors in third world countries that are traveling around and need to do on the fly inspections of pregnant women that Mm -hmm. I imagine that could really come in handy. But not only would this have greater penetration into uh, areas where they don't have a lot of medical technology, but also once you get something that is that portable, where you know you could actually have it in your jacket pocket, and and it's affordable, then you'd think of new ways to use it that you wouldn't have thought of before. So one of the things, that, for example, that was suggested in this article is you could use it to image veins when putting in an IV. Wow! Or or doing little procedures where we do it. Blinded, you know, you do it just by feel and using the the surface anatomy, and you could do it okay. But if you could have a little portable device to actually to see what you were doing, it just it would be make the procedure a little bit easier. It's not worth carrying around a ultrasound machine to do this, but if you could have it on your smartphone, it would be worth it. You know? Yeah, but you still have to attach the the smartphone to an external device. Yeah, but it's tiny. Oh, yeah. you should, it's tiny. It's it, it's yeah, well, just little handheld probe. You know. And then pretty soon with this lip-reading technology, you're going to have Hal reading your lips in the, in the pod. Remember that? <laughs> yeah. Rotate the pod, please, Hal. That was, that was a very creepy part of that movie of 2001. It was, oh, when it's like you my favorite part of that movie. Holy, that, yeah, that Hal is reading their lips. And Hal Kubrick, Hal Kubrick you know, shot that and edited that. It was brilliant. It was brilliant. brilliant. The thing is, though, Steve, that, that wasn't, wasn't Hal inspired by... The race from the monolith, like the, you know, wasn't he? Was that still in question? In two thousand and one, Hal goes <laughs> psychotic. It was left deliberately mysterious. We never knew, were told, and there was never any reason why. In two thousand and ten, Arthur C. Clarke, on his own, provided an explanation, which was that he, w- Hal, was told to lie to the crew, mm. and that that went against some of his more fundamental programming. So he became erratic because he was told to lie. But in 2001, yeah. with it was left deliberately mysterious. I like when it's left deliberately mysterious. Yeah, I mean, we can yeah. just because you can talk about it for you know 30, 50, 40, 50 <laughs> years later, <laughs> right? Right. Would you like to hear a song? <laughs> Daisy. No, but I would like to hear who's that noisy? Well, that's, <laughs> that's kind of a noisy. Do, 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 who's that noisy? All right, but we should review last week's Who's That Noise? Yes. And here it is. We had no idea about how this stuff could be done. We're sort of like, where were people with gravity before Newton came along? I mean, gravity worked, clearly, but no one had an idea how. So similarly, here's some things that uh, we saw worked and happened, but no idea how. All right, Evan, and who was that? And that was Dr. Hal Putoff. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, like Targ- oh, Targ- Targan Putov. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's a zero-point energy guy. And he's also the guy who got totally duped by Uri Geller. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Totally duped. So that's a, that's a rare recording of him, I guess. I'd never heard it before, so to <laughs> me it was rare. Rare to you. Well, but before we go on to this week, Jay, you have to tell us who your noisy was last week. Oh. What, what it was. <laughs> yeah, what the hell was Well, that? to remind our listeners, the, uh, the sound you heard was this. All right, we got it. You got yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. That's that's Jim Jim Carrey in his latest role, <laughs> Squirrel <laughs> Boy. This uh, interesting device was made by humans. <laughs> it is a dolphin pen. Yeah, 
Somebody actually got that, I think. Somebody got yeah. it, yeah. Infamous Tom, somebody did get it. Who? Uh, oh, I don't Some know. guy. Some guy. Some guy. Some guy. Uh, this a it's not the main who's that noisy, so he doesn't get his name said. <laughs> but congratulations, guy. Well done, Homo sapien. <laughs> okay, so that was my who's that noisy. I actually enjoyed that, Evan. I think, uh, I think you have a fun job there. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it is a lot of fun. So what's this week's? And people are enjoying it, I think, as well. So, here's this week's. Who's that noisy? Get ready. Okay, that was creepier than the dolphin pen. All right. So, play it back a few times and rack your brains and throw out your best guess. Thanks, Evan. Enjoy. Thank you, Evan. Jay, what quote you got for us tonight? I have, uh, how about Mark Twain? Alrighty. Love him. Uh, Mark Twain said or wrote, I don't know if he said or wrote, I think he wrote this one. Probably also said it at some point. There is something fascinating about science. One gets such wholesale returns of conjecture out of such a trifling investment effect. Mark Twain! He was the goods man. Yeah. So I have a couple of announcements. Uh, we've been getting a lot of people that use the Zune that are having problems with the podcast and uh, Jeremy, Jeremy and I have been working on it and I'm telling you this one was a big pain in the ass but I think the solution is that all they need to do is unsus- unsubscribe to the show and resubscribe to both podcasts if you're, if you're listening to both but just resubscribe to whatever podcast you're listening to and that'll repoint it to the correct feed please try that if anyone's having a problem after they do that Send me an email from the but site the feed, for Webmaster. the feed is updating. Yeah, the feed is... We, we did change our feed. The feed is different as of the new website. That's that. They have to point to the new feed. Yeah. So the easiest thing they could do is just delete their whole subscription and restart their subscription, and that should fix it. Sorry. Really sorry, guys. We didn't want to change our feed address, but it, we needed to. I have an announcement. First of all, um, Boston Skeptics in the Pub is this Monday, April 27th, and yeah. our special guests are Jeffrey Rowland, who draws the overcompensating webcomic, and his buddy John Rosenberg, who draws goats. Those are two really popular, very sciencey, very geeky, skeptical webcomics, so it's going to be a really fun show this time around. Info on that is at bostonskeptics.com, as always. And also, I was I was on another podcast that's going live soon. It's at doublefeatureshow.com. And uh, it's this fun movie-related podcast. And they had me on to talk about loose change. And so that was fun and a bit infuriating because it's loose change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 9-11 conspiracy theories, all that. So, but it, w- it was a good time, so I highly recommend people check it out. Excellent. That's all. I have an announcement. Okay, Evan. Yes. Uh, the person on the message board who correctly guessed Jay's Who's That Noisy was James01. James01. Thanks, James. Good one. James Mason. <laughs> Steve. I love that. Thank you, thank you all for joining me again this week. Thank you, Steve. Thank Surely. you, thank you, Mr. Thank Mason. You. Thank <laughs> you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe.
The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Problem.